Book six, chapters twelve through fourteen of On War by Karl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter twelve, defensive position. Every position in which we accept battle, at the same time making use of the ground as a means of protection, is a defensive position, and it makes no difference in this respect whether we act more passively or more offensively in the action. This follows from the general view of the defensive which we have given. Now, we may also apply the term to every position in which an army, whilst marching to encounter the enemy, would certainly accept battle if the latter sought for it. In point of fact, most battles take place in this way, and in all the Middle Ages no other was ever thought of. That is, however, not the kind of position of which we are now speaking. By far the greater number of positions are of this kind, and the conception of a position, in contradistinction to a camp taken up on the march, would suffice for that. A position which is specially called a defensive position must therefore have some other distinguishing characteristics. In the decisions which take place in an ordinary position, the idea of time evidently predominates. The armies march against each other in order to come to an engagement. The place is a subordinate point. All that is required from it is that it should not be unsuitable. But in a real defensive position, the idea of place predominates. The decision is to be realised on this spot, or rather chiefly through this spot. That is the only kind of position we have here in view. Now, the connection of place is a double one. That is, in the first instance, insomuch as a force posted at this point exercises a certain influence upon the war in general, and next, inasmuch as the local features of the ground contribute to the strength of the army and afford protection, in a word, a strategic and tactical connection. Strictly speaking, the term defensive position has its origin only in connection with tactics, for its connection with strategy, namely, that an army posted at this point by its presence serves to defend the country, will also suit the case of an army acting offensively. The strategic effect to be derived from a position cannot be shown completely until hereafter, when we discuss the defence of a theatre of war. We shall therefore only consider it here as far as can be done at present, and for that end we must examine more closely the nature of two ideas which have a similarity and are often mistaken for one another, that is, the turning of a position and the passing by it. The turning a position relates to its front and is done either by an attack upon the side of the position or on its rear, or by acting against its lines of retreat and communication. The first of these, that is, an attack on flank or rear, is tactical in its nature. In our days in which the mobility of troops is so great, and all plans of battles have more or less in view the turning or enveloping the enemy, every position must accordingly be adapted to meet such measures, and one to deserve the name of strong must, with a strong front, allow at least of good combinations for battle on the sides and rear as well, in case of their being menaced. In this way a position will not become untenable by the enemy turning it, with a view to an attack on the flank or rear, as the battle which then takes place was provided for in the choice of the position, and should ensure the defender all the advantages which he could expect from this position generally. 
if the position is turned by the enemy with a view to acting against the lines of retreat and communication this is a strategic relation and the question is how long the position can be maintained and whether we can outbid the enemy by a scheme like his own both these questions depend on the situation of the point strategically that is chiefly on the relations of the lines of communication of both combatants a good position should secure an army on the defensive the advantage in this point in any case the position will not be rendered of no effect in this way as the enemy is neutralized by the position when he is occupied by it in the manner supposed but if the assailant without troubling himself about the existence of the army awaiting his attack in a defensive position advances with his main body by another line in pursuit of his object then he passes by the position and if he can do this with impunity and really does it he will immediately enforce the abandonment of the position consequently put an end to its usefulness there is hardly any position in the world which in the simple sense of the words cannot be passed by for cases such as the isthmus of Perkop are so rare that they are hardly worth attention the impossibility of passing by must therefore be understood as merely applying to the disadvantages in which the assailant would become involved if he set about such an operation we shall have a more fitting opportunity to state these disadvantages in the twenty-seventh chapter whether small or great in every case they are the equivalent of the tactical effect which the position is capable of producing but which has not yet been realized and in common with it constitute the object of the position from the preceding observations therefore two strategic properties of the defensive position have resulted one that it cannot be passed round two that in the struggle for the lines of communication it gives the defender advantages here we have to add two other strategic properties namely three that the relation of the lines of communication may also have a favourable influence on the form of the combat and four that the general influence of the country is advantageous for the relation of the lines of communication has an influence not only upon the possibility or impossibility of passing by a position or of cutting off the enemy's supplies but also on the whole course of the battle an oblique line of retreat facilitates a tactical turning movement on the part of the assailant and paralyzes our own tactical movements during the battle but an oblique position in relation to the lines of communication is often not the fault of tactics but a consequence of a defective strategic point it is for example not to be avoided when the road changes direction in the vicinity of the position up in bracket Bardino, 1812 close bracket the assailant is then in such a position that he can turn our line without deviating from his own perpendicular disposition further the aggressor has much greater freedom for tactical movement if he commands several roads for his retreat whilst we are limited to one in such cases the tactical skill of the defensive will be exerted in vain to overcome the disadvantageous influence resulting from the strategic relations lastly as regards the fourth point such a disadvantageous general influence may predominate in the other characteristics of ground that the most careful choice and the best use of tactical means can do nothing to combat them under such circumstances the chief points are as follows one the defensive must particularly seek for the advantage of being able to overlook his adversary so that he may be able swiftly to throw himself upon him inside the limits of his position it is only when the local difficulties of approach combine with these two conditions that the ground is really favourable to the defensive on the other hand those points which are under the influence of commanding ground are disadvantageous to him 
also most positions in mountains open bracket of which we shall speak more particularly in the chapters on mountain warfare close bracket further positions which rest one flank on mountains for such a position certainly makes the passing by more difficult but facilitates a turning movement of the same kind are all positions which have a mountain immediately in their front and generally all those which bear relation to the description of ground above specified as an example of the opposite of these disadvantageous properties we shall only instance the case of a position which has a mountain in rear from this so many advantages result that it may be assumed in general to be one of the most favourable of all positions for the defensive two a country may correspond more or less to the character and composition of an army a very numerous cavalry is a proper reason for seeking an open country want of this arm perhaps also of artillery while we have at command a courageous infantry inured to war and acquainted with the country make it advisable to take advantage of a difficult close country we do not here enter into particulars respecting the tactical relation which the local features of a defensive position bear to the force which is to occupy it we only speak of the total result as that only is a strategic quantity undoubtedly a position in which an army is to await the full force of the hostile attack should give the troops such an important advantage of ground as may be considered a multiplier of its force where nature does much but not to the full as much as we want the art of entrenchment comes to our help in this way it happens not unfrequently that some parts become unassailable and not usually the whole is made so plainly in this last case the whole nature of the measure is changed it is then no longer a battle under advantageous conditions which we seek and in this battle the issue of the campaign but an issue without battle whilst we occupy with our force an unassailable position we directly refuse the battle and oblige our enemy to seek for a solution in some other way we must therefore completely separate these two cases and shall speak of the latter in the following chapter under the title of a strong position but the defensive position with which we have now to do is nothing more than a field of battle with the addition of advantages in our favour and that it should become a field of battle the advantages in our favour must not be too great but now what degree of strength may such a position have plainly more in proportion as our enemy is more determined on the attack and that depends on the nature of the individual case opposed to a bonaparte we may and should withdraw behind stronger ramparts than before a dawn or a schwarzenberg if certain portions of a position are unattackable say the front then that is to be taken as a separate factor of its whole strength for the forces not required at that point are available for employment elsewhere but we must not omit to observe that whilst the enemy is kept completely off such impregnable points the form of his attack assumes quite a different character and we must ascertain in the first instance how this alteration will suit our situation for instance to take up a position as has often been done so close behind a great river that it is looked upon as covering the front is nothing else but to make the river a point of support for the right or left flank for the enemy is naturally obliged to cross further to the right or left and cannot attack without changing his front the chief question therefore is what advantage or disadvantages does that bring to us according to our opinion a defensive position will come the nearer to the true ideal of such a position the more its strength is hid from observation and the more it is favourable to our surprising the enemy by our combinations in the battle just as we advisably endeavour to conceal from the enemy the whole strength of our forces 
and our real intentions so in the same way we should seek to conceal from the enemy the advantages which we expect to derive from the form of the ground this of course can only be done to a certain degree and requires perhaps a peculiar mode of proceeding hitherto but little attempted the vicinity of a considerable fortress in whatever direction it may be confers on every position a great advantage over the enemy in the movement and the use of the forces belonging to it by suitable field works the want of natural strength at particular points may be remedied and in that manner the great features of the battle may be settled beforehand at will these are the means of strengthening by art if with these we combine a good selection of those natural obstacles of ground which impede the effective action of the enemy's forces without making action absolutely impossible if we turn to the best account the advantage we have over the enemy in knowing the ground which he does not so that we succeed in concealing our movements better than he does his and that we have a general superiority over him in unexpected movements in the course of the battle then from these advantages united there may result in our favour an overpowering and decisive influence in connection with the ground under the power of which the enemy will succumb without knowing the real cause of his defeat that is what we understand under the defensive position and we consider it one of the greatest advantages of defensive war leaving out of consideration particular circumstances we may assume that an undulating not too well but still not too little cultivated country affords the most positions of this kind End of chapter twelve chapter thirteen strong positions and entrenched camps we have said in the preceding chapter that a position so strong through nature assisted by art that it is unassailable does not come under the meaning of an advantageous field of battle but belongs to a peculiar class of things we shall in this chapter take a review of what constitutes the nature of this peculiarity and on account of the analogy between such positions and fortresses call them strong positions merely by entrenchments alone they can hardly be made except as entrenched camps resting on fortresses but still less are they to be found ready formed entirely by natural obstacles art usually lends a hand to assist nature and therefore they are frequently designated as entrenched camps or positions at the same time that term may be readily applied to any position strengthened more or less by field works which need have nothing in common with the nature of the position we are now considering the object of a strong position is to make the force there stationed in point of fact unattackable and by that means either really to cover a certain space directly or only the troops which occupy that space in order then through them in another way to effect the covering of the country indirectly the first was the signification of lines of former times for instance those on the french frontier the latter is that of entrenched camps laid out near fortresses and showing a front in every direction if for instance the front of a position is so strong by works and hindrances to approach that an attack is impossible then the enemy is compelled to turn it to make his attack on a side of it or in rear now to prevent this being easily done points d'appui were sought for these lines which should give them a certain degree of support on the flanks such as the rhine and the vosges give the lines in alsace the longer the front of such a line the more easily it can be protected from being turned because every movement to turn it is attended with danger to the side attempting the movement 
the danger increasing in proportion as the required movement causes a greater deviation from the normal direction of the attacking force therefore a considerable length of front which can be made unassailable and good flank supports ensure the possibility of protecting a large space of territory directly from hostile invasion at least that was the view in which works of this class originated that was the object of the lines in alsace with their right flank on the rhine and their left on the vosges and the lines in flanders seventy-five miles long resting their right on the scheldt and the fortress of tournay their left on the sea but when we have not the advantages of such a long well-defended front and good flank supports if the country is to be held generally by a force well entrenched then that force and its position must be protected against being turned by such an arrangement that it can show a front in every direction but then the idea of a thoroughly covered tract of country vanishes for such a position is only strategically a point which covers the force occupying it and thus secures to that force the power of keeping the field that is to say maintaining itself in the country such a camp cannot be turned that is cannot be attacked in flank or rear by reason of those parts being weaker than its front for it can show front in all directions and is equally strong everywhere but such a camp can be passed by and that much easier than a fortified line because its extent amounts to nothing entrenched camps connected with fortresses are in reality of this second kind for the object of them is to protect the troops assembled in them but their further strategic meaning that is the application of this protected force is somewhat different from that of other fortified camps having given this explanation of the origin of these three different defensive means we shall now proceed to consider the value of each of them separately under the heads of strong lines strong positions and entrenched camps resting on fortresses one lines these lead to the worst kind of cordon war the obstacle which they present to the aggressor is of no value at all unless they are defended by a powerful fire in themselves they are simply worthless but now the extent to which an army can furnish an effective fire is generally very small in proportion to the extent of country to be defended the lines can therefore only be short and consequently cover only a small extent of country or the army will not be able really to defend the lines at all points in consequence of this the idea was started of not occupying all points in the line but only watching them and defending them by means of strong reserves in the same way as a small river may be defended but this procedure is in opposition to the nature of the means if the natural obstacles of the ground are so great that such a method of defence could be applied then the entrenchments were needless and entailed danger for that method of defence is not local and entrenchments are only suited to a strictly local defence but if the entrenchments themselves are to be considered the chief impediments to the approach then we may easily conceive that an undefended line will not have much to say as an obstacle to approach what is a twelve or fifteen feet ditch and a rampart ten or twelve feet high against the united efforts of many thousands if these efforts are not hindered by the fire of an enemy the consequence therefore is that if such lines are short and tolerably well defended by troops they can be turned but if they are extensive and not sufficiently occupied they can be attacked in front and taken without much difficulty now as lines of this description tie the troops down to a local defence and take away from them all mobility they are a bad and senseless means to use against an enterprising enemy if we find them long retained in modern wars in spite of these objections 
the cause lies entirely in the low degree of energy impressed on the conduct of war one consequence of which was that seeming difficulties often affected quite as much as real ones besides in most campaigns these lines were used merely for a secondary defence against irregular incursions if they have been found not wholly inefficacious for that purpose we must only keep in view at the same time how much more usefully the troops required for their defence might have been employed at other points in the latest wars such lines have been out of the question neither do we find any trace of them and it is doubtful if they will ever reappear two positions the defence of attractive country continues open bracket, as we shall show more plainly in the twenty seventh chapter close bracket, as long as the force designated for it maintains itself there and only ceases if that force removes and abandons it if a force is to maintain itself in any district of country which is attacked by very superior forces the means of protecting this force against the power of the sword by a position which is unassailable is a first consideration now such a position as we before said must be able to show a front in all directions and in conformity with the usual extent of tactical dispositions if the force is not very large open bracket, and a large force would be contrary to the nature of the supposed case close bracket, it would take up a very small space which in the course of the combat would be exposed to so many disadvantages that even if strengthened in every possible way by entrenchments we could hardly expect to make a successful defence such a camp showing front in every direction must therefore necessarily have an extent of sides proportionably great but these sides must likewise be as good as unassailable to give this requisite strength notwithstanding the required extension is not within the compass of the art of field fortification it is therefore a fundamental condition that such a camp must derive part of its strength from natural impediments of ground which render many places impassable and others difficult to pass in order therefore to apply this defensive means it is necessary to find such a spot and when that is wanting the object cannot be attained merely by field works these considerations relate more immediately to tactical results in order that we may first establish the existence of this strategic means we mention as examples for illustration pirna bunzelwitz kolberg torres vedras and drissa now as respects the strategic properties and effects the first condition is naturally that the force which occupies this camp shall have its subsistence secured for some time that is for as long as we think the camp will be required and this is only possible when the position has behind it a port like kolberg and torres vedras or stands in connection with a fortress like bunzelwitz and pirna or has large depots within itself or in the immediate vicinity like drissa it is only in the first case that the provisioning can be ensured for any time we please in the second and third cases it can only be so for a more or less limited time so that in this point there is always danger from this appears how the difficulty of subsistence debars the use of many strong points which otherwise would be suitable for entrenched positions and therefore makes those that are eligible scarce in order to ascertain the eligibility of a position of this description its advantages and defects we must ask ourselves what the aggressor can do against it a the assailant can pass by this strong position pursue his enterprise and watch the position with a greater or lesser force we must here make a distinction between the cases of a position which is occupied by the main body and one only occupied by an inferior force in the first case the passing by the position can only benefit the assailant if besides the principal force of the defendant there is also some other attainable and decisive object of attack 
as for instance the capture of a fortress or a capital city etc but even if there is such an object he can only follow it if the strength of his base and the direction of his lines of communication are such that he has no cause to fear operations against his strategic flanks the conclusions to be drawn from this with respect to the admissibility and eligibility of a strong position for the main body of the defender's army are that it is only an advisable position when either the possibility of operating against the strategic flank of the aggressor is so decisive that we may be sure beforehand of being able in that way to keep him at a point where his army can effect nothing or in a case where there is no object attainable by the aggressor for which the defence need be uneasy if there is such an object and the strategic flank of the assailant cannot be seriously menaced then such a position should not be taken up or if it is it should only be as a feint to see whether the assailant can be imposed upon respecting its value this is always attended with the danger in case of failure of being too late to reach the point which is threatened if the strong position is only held by an inferior force then the aggressor can never be at a loss for a further object of attack because he has it in the main body itself of the enemy's army in this case therefore the value of the position is entirely limited to the means which it affords of operating against the enemy's strategic flank and depends upon that condition b if the assailant does not venture to pass by a position he can invest it and reduce it by famine but this supposes two conditions beforehand first that the position is not open in rear and secondly that the assailant is sufficiently strong to be able to make such an investment if these two conditions are united then the assailant's army certainly would be neutralized for a time by this strong position but at the same time the defensive pays the price of this advantage by a loss of his defensive force from this therefore we deduce that the occupation of such a strong position with the main body is a measure only to be taken a a when the rear is perfectly safe open brackets torres vedras close brackets b b when we foresee that the enemy's force is not strong enough formally to invest us in our camp should the enemy attempt the investment with insufficient means then we should be able to sally out of the camp and beat him in detail c c when we can count upon relief like the saxons at pierna seventeen fifty six and as took place in the main at prague because prague can only be regarded as an entrenched camp in which prince charles would not have allowed himself to be shut up if he had not known that the moravian army could liberate him one of these three conditions is therefore absolutely necessary to justify the choice of a strong position for the main body of an army at the same time we must add that the two last are bordering on a great danger for the defensive but if it is a question of exposing an inferior corps to the risk of being sacrificed for the benefit of the whole then these conditions disappear and the only point to decide is whether by such a sacrifice a greater evil may be avoided this will seldom happen at the same time it is certainly not inconceivable the entrenched camp at pierna prevented frederick the great from attacking bohemia as he would have done in the year seventeen fifty six the austrians were at that time so little prepared that the loss of that kingdom appears beyond doubt and perhaps a greater loss of men would have been connected with it than the seventeen thousand allied troops who capitulated at the pierna camp see if none of those possibilities specified under a and b are in favour of the aggressor if therefore the conditions which we have laid down for the defensive are fulfilled then there remains certainly nothing to be done by the assailant but to fix himself before the position like a setter before a covey of birds to spread himself perhaps as much as possible by detachments over the country and contenting himself with these small and indecisive advantages to leave the real decision as to the possession of the territory to the future
In this case, the position has fulfilled its object. 3. Entrenched camps near fortresses. They belong, as already said, to the class of entrenched positions generally, in so far as they have for their object to cover not a tract of territory, but an armed force against a hostile attack. And only differ in reality from the other in this, that with the fortress they make up an inseparable whole, by which they naturally acquire much greater strength. But there follows further from the above the undermentioned special points. A. That they may also have the particular object of rendering the siege of the fortress either impossible or extremely difficult. This object may be worth a great sacrifice of troops if the place is a port which cannot be blockaded. But in any other case, we have to take care lest the place is one which may be reduced by hunger so soon that the sacrifice of any considerable number of troops is not justifiable. B. Entrenched camps can be formed near fortresses for smaller bodies of troops than those in the open field. Four or five thousand men may be invincible under the walls of a fortress, when on the contrary, in the strongest camp in the world, formed in the open field, they would be lost. C. They may be used for the assembly and organisation of forces which have still too little solidity to be trusted in contact with the enemy, without the support afforded by the works of the place, as, for example, recruits, militia, national levies, etc. They might therefore be recommended as a very useful measure in many ways, if they had not the immense disadvantage of injuring the fortress, more or less, when they cannot be occupied. And to provide the fortress with a garrison, in some measure sufficient to occupy the camp also, would be much too onerous a condition. We are therefore very much inclined to consider them only advisable for places on a sea-coast, and as more injurious than useful in all other cases. If in conclusion we should summarise our opinion in a general view, then strong and entrenched positions are, 1. The more requisite the smaller the country, the less space afforded for a retreat. 2. The less dangerous, the more surely we can reckon on succouring or relieving them by other forces, or by the inclemency of season, or by a rising of the nation, or by want, etc. 3. The more efficacious, the weaker the elementary force of the enemy's attack. End of chapter 13. Chapter 14. Flank Positions. We have only allotted to this prominent conception in the world of ordinary military theory a special chapter in dictionary fashion that it may the more easily be found, for we do not believe that anything independent in itself is denoted by the term. Every position which is to be held, even if the enemy passes by it, is a flank position, for from the moment that he does so it can have no other efficacy but that which it exercises on the enemy's strategic flank. Therefore, necessarily, all strong positions are flank positions as well. For, as they cannot be attacked, the enemy accordingly is driven to pass them by. Therefore, they can only have a value by their influence on his strategic flank. The direction of the proper front of a strong position is quite immaterial. Whether it runs parallel with the enemy's strategic flank as Kolberg, or at right angles as Bunzelwitz and Drissa, for a strong position must front every way but it may also be desirable still to maintain a position which is not unassailable, even if the enemy passes by it. Should its situation, for instance, give us such a prepondering advantage in the comparative relations of the lines of retreat and communication, that we can not only make an efficacious attack on the strategic flank of the advancing enemy, but also that the enemy, alarmed for his own retreat, is unable to seize ours entirely. For if that last is not the case, then because our position is not a strong that is, not an unassailable one, we should run the risk of being obliged to fight without having the command of any retreat. 
The year 1806 affords an example which throws a light on this. The disposition of the Prussian army on the right bank of the Saal might, in respect to Bonaparte's advance by Hof, have become in every sense a flank position, if the army had been drawn up with its front parallel to the Saal and there, in that position, waited the progress of events. If there had not been such a disproportion of moral and physical powers, if there had only been a down at the head of the French army, then the Prussian position might have shown its efficacy by a most brilliant result. To pass it by was quite impossible. That was acknowledged by Bonaparte, by his resolution to attack it. In severing from it the line of retreat, even Bonaparte himself did not completely succeed, and if the disproportion in physical and moral relations had not been quite so great, that would have been just as little practicable as the passing it by for this Prussian army was in much less danger from its left wing being overpowered than the French army would have been by the defeat of their left wing. Even with the disproportion of physical and moral power as it existed, a resolute and sagacious exercise of the command would still have given great hopes of a victory. There was nothing to prevent the Duke of Brunswick from making arrangements on the 13th, so that on the morning of the 14th at daybreak he might have opposed 80,000 men to the 60,000 with which Bonaparte passed the Saal near Jena and Dornberg. Had even this superiority in numbers and the steep valley of the Saal behind the French not been sufficient to procure a decisive victory, still it was a fortunate occurrence of circumstances, and if with such advantages no successful decision could be gained, no decision was to be expected in that district of country, and we should therefore have retreated further in order to gain reinforcements and weaken the enemy. The Prussian position on the Saal, therefore, although assailable, might have been regarded as a flank position in respect to the great road through Hof. But like every position which can be attacked, that property is not to be attributed to it absolutely, because it would only have become so if the enemy had not attempted to attack it. Still less would it bespeak a clear idea if those positions which cannot be maintained after the enemy has passed by them, and from which, in consequence of that, the defensive seeks to attack the assailant's flank, were called flank positions merely because his attack is directed against a flank. For this flank attack has hardly anything to do with the position itself, or at least is not mainly produced by its properties, as is the case in the action against a strategic flank. It appears from this that there is nothing new to establish with regard to the properties of a flank position. A few words only on the character of the measure may properly be introduced here. We set aside, however, completely strong positions in the true sense as we have said enough about them already. A flank position which is not assailable is an extremely efficacious instrument, but certainly, just on that account, a dangerous one. If the assailant is checked by it, then we have obtained a great effect by a small expenditure of force. It is the pressure of the finger on the long lever of a sharp bit. But if the effect is too insignificant, if the assailant is not stopped, then the defensive has more or less imperiled his retreat, and must seek to escape either in haste and by a detour, consequently under very unfavourable circumstances, or he is in danger of being compelled to fight without any line of retreat being open to him. Against a bold adversary having the moral superiority and seeking a decisive solution, this means is therefore extremely hazardous and entirely out of place, as shown by the example of 1806 above quoted. On the other hand, when used against a cautious opponent in a war of mere observation, it may be reckoned one of the best means which the defensive can adopt. The Duke Ferdinand's defence of the Vesa by his position on the left bank, 
and the well-known positions of Schmotzefen and Landshut are examples of this. Only the latter, it is true, by the catastrophe which befell Folk's Corps in 1760, also shows the danger of a false application. End of chapter 14 Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia